one church, three locations, and here at City Life Suffolk, we have three services in. Still exciting. And let me tell you, those devoted videos, the new one we had this week, those get me excited to preach because those preachers are going in for those 10-second clips. So let me encourage you, if you're a, a female here, a woman, a mother, make it a priority to get there. So I know husbands, that means you got to make it a priority to release her to go, especially if you got kids. But let me tell you, it's incredible. We roll 90 deep, sometimes close to 100 deep every year, and there's not just awesome teaching, but awesome fellowship. And like we talk about the family of faith, we talk about getting rooted it happens there. So, so get there. So, fellas, make that a priority. And I appreciate everybody being here because it's Valentine's Day Eve. You could have tried to beat the crowd, maybe going on the date tonight, but you made church a priority. But let me encourage you, fellas, let me encourage you, husbands, tomorrow make your wife a priority. Because I think it's funny how Valentine's Day felt exactly one week after Super Bowl Sunday, where the ball's kind of in our court. Right, we might even lose a point or two. Like we talk about marriages as a points-based system because the pendulum has swung so far into your favor, where it's just food and football, right, and some awesome fellowship if you went to the church party. But tomorrow, let me encourage you, husbands, score some points on behalf of Team Husband. Can we do that? Can we do that? So, how many? Let me just ask. I've got this twenty-five dollar gift card to Regal Cinemas. Who here has been married for ten or more years? Awesome. See, my wife and I, we celebrate, honor, and respect every one of you. We're still five and a half, single digits, so 10 years, awesome. 15 or more years? 20 or more years? 25 or more years? That's awesome. Let's give it up for the 25 or more. 20 or more. 30 or more years? 35. Dean and Sue Nowotny. Yeah. You guys don't have to use this tomorrow because I'm sure it will be a madhouse. But, hey, we love you guys. Honor you guys, respect you guys for your marriage and the example this does. Do you have any advice for, for me, for other younger marriages? Lean on God. I'll take it. Take that to the bank. Lean on God. That's good. <laughs> yep, that's good. Because how many of you guys know a happy marriage makes for a happy home? And a happy wife makes for a happy marriage. So Valentine's Day, you get to work towards that. Because we're actually in a series right now called Welcome Home. We're polling from Jeremiah, chapter 29. It's part of a scriptural witness that we've been talking about, that we are journeying, we're passing through. We're not really called to put down deep roots in this life. We are aliens and exiles here in this life. And our hope for a taste of home and our hope for a taste of, of heaven, heaven now, heaven forever, is to taste the goodness of God here in this life. Again, in Psalm 27, it says, I would have lost hope if I didn't believe I'd see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And even in Jeremiah 29, where the Israelites are in exile, he gives them these notes to find a home there in exile, that they could thrive even in exile. And it says in verses 4 through 7 of Jeremiah 29, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now again, we've said it before from the New Testament perspective, we now read this verse from. We see that this speaks to all believers and that we live in exile as we live out our witness in our age. But we're called to find a home 
in God's church with his people, as we talked about last week with the family of faith, where we get rooted and grow. So how many of you guys have heard of G.K. Chesterton? Right? I feel like Steph and I are adopting, so we've had a long time to plan names. I feel like if you give your child two letters for first name, you're setting them on a good course. C.S. Lewis, A.W. Tozer, G.K. Chesterton, all the D.A. Carson, all these people that just have two letters. Like, so whatever the first two letters are, they better be good. But G.K. Chesterton explains how this worldview affects us and how it helps our perspective in life. It's G.K. Chesterton, so put on your big word seatbelt because he's about to drop a couple. But he says the fall, and for our purposes, the resulting exile, is a view of life. It is not only the only enlightening, but also the only encouraging view of life. It holds, as against the only real alternative philosophies, that we have misused a good world and not merely been entrapped in a bad one. Every other creed except that one is some form of surrender to fate. A man who holds this view of life will find it giving light on a thousand things. On those extremes of good and evil by which man exceeds all the animals by the measure of heaven and hell. On that sublime sense of loss that is the very sound of all great poetry. And nowhere more than in the poetry of pagans and skeptics where we look before and after and pine for what is not. Which cries against all the prigs and progressive that happiness is not only a hope, but also in some strange manner a memory, and that we are all kings in exile. This idea of, of kings in exile, we see it literally in Jeremiah 29, where Israel's king and his people have been taken into exile. But it even points back even further to Eden, where we were given dominion over creation, where we were said, hey, be fruitful and multiply. Build, work, work the ground. And then you look at Jeremiah 29. Even in exile, their call was to build, increase, and get to work. And it's the same for us as the church. Even in this life, our call is to build, to increase, and there's a work for us to do. We talked two weeks ago about the, the homework call to even in exile. We talked last week about looking around at the family of faith that, that we build relationship and accountability and we gather with. And then tonight we're going to talk about working. And specifically the four pathworks of pathways of reaching, serving, stewardship, and generosity. But before I even go any further tonight, I want to give a definition of terms to distinguish even though the work we're talking about. Because as I was preparing this sermon, just off the top of my head, there's three kinds of work and works that come to mind. The first is works, which you could call the accrual of good deeds, right? Uh, trying to pile up enough righteousness that it tips the, the scales in your favor with God. And then there's Work, our calling, our purpose. You look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, and then 10, it says we're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man can boast. There's the first kind of works. But then you go to verse 10, and it says why we're saved is so that we can do the work that God prepared in advance for us to do. So we see that there's two kinds of works. The first one, not smiled upon. The second one, we're called to. And then thirdly, of course, we got work, 9 to 5, the job. We're going to talk a lot about those last two tonight, but it's important to distinguish between the first two, because Christians usually only recognize two ways of responding to Jesus. You either give him the stiff arm and want nothing to do with him, nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with his teaching, or you accept him and follow him. However, there are three responses found through scripture to Jesus Christ. The first is irreligion, avoiding Jesus as Lord by ignoring him altogether. The second, though, is religion, or by many definitions, moralism. 
which is avoiding Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by developing a moral righteousness and then presenting it to God to show that he owes you. And then lastly, we see the gospel, that God developed and gave us righteousness through Jesus. Now, this is a necessary pause of definition because religion and moralism, this idea of I work, therefore I'm accepted, is so different from the gospel where I'm accepted, therefore I work, and therefore I do the work of obedience and and the work that God has called me to. And though religious moralism and the gospel have such a different motivation and attitude on the surface, they look the same. Both strive to obey God, to pray, to give generously, to be a good member of a good family. But underneath, there are different motives, different spirits, and a different resulting character. Moralism in religion is our natural inclination. It's what we're drawn to. You don't have to look any further than every other world religion where there is this accrual of good deeds hoping to tip the scale ultimately at the end of your life in your favor. But that's not what the gospel says. So we drift towards moralism when we go unchecked, and we need to always counter that with the truth of the gospel. And that's why when you read the book of James, he's writing to the church. And that's where he lays down this hammer that, hey, faith without works is dead. But then you think, well, wait about it. We just talked about Ephesians 2, right, where he says, hey, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man can boast. But you got to look at their focus. Paul's focus is how do I get in right relationship with God? He was addressing the lost. James's focus is once I'm in right relationship with God, how does this affect how I work out my life? How does this affect community, relationships, loving people, serving people, reaching people for God? Paul's focus is lost people. James' focus is lazy religious people. James makes it clear, crystal clear for followers of Jesus Christ, that there is work to be done. Not just work of transformation in our hearts and in our lives, looking more like Christ, but the work of building the kingdom and building the church around us in our region. And where you see it most, right, in the book of Acts, that's right after the Gospels, because after you have an encounter with Jesus, we should see some action. We should see some work that goes down building the kingdom. Because, again, after I'm accepted by Jesus Christ, I work and obey out of the joy and gratitude of that revelation. Grace doesn't displace effort. If anything, it calls us deeper into it. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, saved by grace through faith. But that doesn't remove the work. It points right to it in verse 10, to the work that God prepared in advance for us to do. I believe it was Martin Luther that said it first, and then I think Tim Keller's echoed it, and I'm going to echo it again right now. We're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Grace doesn't eliminate work. It lays a new foundation for obedience, one that's faith, hope, and love. When we hear faith, hope, and love, so often we think of, you know, Corinthians and and Paul's poetic uh, passage there and, and matters of the heart. But what does faith, hope, and love look like worked out? And you see it in 1 Thessalonians 1 through 3. It says, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Grace doesn't displace work. Calls us to reach, it calls us to serve, calls us to the labor of love, calls us to the work of faith, calls us to the great commission. But just tonight, right now, I want to look at a previous commission that happens in Matthew chapter 10. As Jesus sends his disciples out to minister two by two, it it says in Matthew chapter 9, the very end, into Matthew chapter 10, this is the message version. It's a long passage, but I'm going to read some excerpts real quick. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. It's a lot. Wayne was like, do you realize there's a wall of text in your slides? Yes, that's it right there. Jesus says, what a huge harvest. 
he said to his disciples, how few workers. On your knees and pray for the harvest hands. The prayer was no sooner prayed than it was answered. Jesus sent his 12 harvest hands out with this charge. Don't begin by traveling to some far off place to convert unbelievers. And don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. Go to the lost, confused people right here in the neighborhood. Tell them that the kingdom is here. You have been treated generously, so live generously. Don't think you have to put on a fundraising campaign before you start. You don't need a lot of equipment. You are the equipment. We are intimately linked in this harvest work. Anyone who accepts what you do accepts me, the one who sent you. This is a large work I've called you into, but don't be overwhelmed by it. It's best to start small. Give a cool cup of water to someone who is thirsty, for instance. The smallest act of giving or receiving makes you a true apprentice. You won't lose out on a thing. Such a great passage, and it hits you in so many ways, but what I like is that Jesus doesn't sweat the harvest. The harvest is ripe. It's ready. He sweats the fact who's ready to work it, who's ready to get to work. And we won't work the harvest with a perspective that's all about me, myself, and I. We've talked about that previous weeks. Again, that this, if our faith is solely inward focused, then it's out of focus. And we've talked about how when we find a home in the church, that should shift our focus in many ways. Talked last week about how we need to look around at the family of faith. Next week, we're going to talk about looking up and how we should rest in God's will. And, and tonight, we're talking about looking out the work God calls us to. In John 4, 35, Jesus is again talking about the harvest fields. He says, lift up your eyes and look to the fields because they're ripe. So again, I want to look tonight at four ways, reaching, serving, and then stewardship and generosity, that we're called to serve our community, work in our church. The first we'll look at is reaching, which you might call evangelism. But again, if we're stuck looking inward then our faith is out of focus. Sometimes that's an individual. Sometimes that's an entire church. There's this quote by Louis Palau. It says, the church is like manure. Pile it together, and it stinks up the neighborhood. Spread it out, and it enriches the world. <laughs> we're called to spread out. We're called to get rooted. We talked last week how we're called to get rooted in the church, find a home in the family of faith. But just as important is reaching out. Just as important is going out. Now, not to give the cliched football analogy the week after the Super Bowl, but honest confession, I just love football. So football analogies might just go throughout the year. But we want at this church to reach the undevoted, the disconnected, and the discipled. The undevoted and the lost, the disconnected who don't have a church, who are sitting in the bleachers kind of just watching what's going on. And then we want to Touch the disciples. We want to disciple them. We want to bring them together into this, this weekend service, right? The huddle, where we come together. The huddle is important. But in our modern church culture, we can shift into a perspective that the work of the church is done in the huddle on the weekends. That reaching people takes place at the church, not through the church. See, reaching people happens here, but it also should happen through the church during the week. Sometimes our idea of reaching is just rounding up invites when God's also calling us to go out and impact people where they are. As much as we invite them in, we should be going out to impact our neighborhoods, our cities, our schools, our workplaces. A huddle's good. You come together, draw the play in the dirt, understand what the vision is, what are we accomplishing here, what are we all going to be doing. But if you don't ever break that huddle, go out onto the playing field or where God's called you to be and thrive, then what's the point of the huddle? Ephesians 5.14 says, hey, in the church, pastors and leaders are here to equip everyone for the work of ministry. It's work, and it happens at home, 
happens in our neighborhoods. It happens everywhere. In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, it says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, we've talked about this before. This was not the ideal living situation for the Israelites. Verses 4 through 7 doesn't sound so rough, but we went over how they were starved out. They were drugged through a desert. People were dying as they went into exile, and they probably died in exile. This wasn't a pretty situation. Every fiber of their being probably wanted to escape exile. And, you know, sometimes in the, in the church, we can have a, an escapist mentality, especially with, with youth who, who want to escape the, the quote-unquote boring local for the exciting global. Now, is global reach important to spreading the gospel? Absolutely. But if that's all of our focus is all the time, what happens to this region? What happens to our neighborhoods? What happens to Suffolk? What happens to Carrollton? What happens to Chesapeake, Portsmouth, all these places we live? See, again, Jesus sent his harvest hands out with this charge. Don't begin by traveling to some far-off place to convert unbelievers, and don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. Go to the lost, confused people right here in the neighborhood. Tell them that the kingdom is here. In Acts 1-8, when the Holy Spirit comes in power, he says, hey, first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to the ends of the earth. Reaching begins with where God's placed us. And we can never get so focused on the ends of the earth that we forget our Jerusalem, our city. Here's what I want everyone to go home with tonight. God's call to go isn't always a call to leave. The call we have to reach often starts with places and people that are within our reach. Our call and command to go isn't always a call to leave. Now, this isn't also to talk down missions by any means. Get involved in missions. This also isn't to talk down escaping on some bomb vacations, right? Steph and I on a bucket list at some point, whether we win the lottery Go on sabbatical years and years. I don't know. We're going to, like, a Mediterranean cruise that would hit, like, Italy, Greece, the Holy Land. All at once, that's on the bucket list. How many of you have, like, a bucket list vacation? Like, I want to hit up Easter Island or see the pyramids, whatever it might be. That's good. That's good. Vacations are good. Next week, we're talking about rest. So you're going to want to be here for that one. But tonight, we're talking about reaching. And, and by all means, if you can go on a missions trip, do it. I know some faces in here that went with me the last time we went down to the DR. There's opportunities here. We have trips that go to Haiti to build bridges, trips that have been going to the DR to build latrines and hopefully one day build water purification system, a community center in this village called La Guasara. Sometimes we go there twice a year, do VBS all while we're down there. I got to preach the gospel last time we were there. We're, we're having an impact. You ever have a chance to go on one of those trips? By all means, do it. See Carrie? Wave your hand, Carrie. See myself? Whoever. That's a shameless plug. You should go on a mission trip at some point in your life. You talk about 12 pathways, you come back juiced up after a mission trip because you just walked all 12 pathways for a week, right? But we're talking tonight about reaching. But let me tell you, take the, the go to the orientation because it's uncomfortable. It's going to stretch you. Sleeping under mosquito nets to a symphony of snoring, right? Your, 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 your shower is a bucket of ice cold water at the end of the day. That same bucket everybody's using to flush, the one toilet that everybody is using. So it's, just, it's uncomfortable. There are not quite potty trained two-year-olds that love piggyback rides. Connect the dots on that when you pack a couple extra shirts. But see, on, on mission trips, you get comfortable with the fact you're uncomfortable. You just know that's part of the deal. For me to reach this community, I'm gonna have to be comfortable with getting uncomfortable. But then we come home, and we get comfortable with being comfortable again. You know, reaching our neighborhoods, reaching our community should have the same focus, should have the same, at times, stretching and just uncomfortable moments because God's telling you to step out of your comfort zone. 
And I think it's safe to say that God doesn't send many people out into the world to reach people if they didn't already walk in a reaching perspective at home. See, the reality is, for some of you, this is your first frontier. For others, this is like our final frontier. I, I, I came out of youth ministry where I'm preaching to students, and I realized, man, a couple years, they're gonna, they might be in a college in another state. After that, they might move to a whole other state. I might not see them in a couple years. But for adults, sometimes we got the military where they're sent as well. But a lot of times, adults preaching to adults, most of our lives are going to be spent right here. We're going to be rooted right here. But it would be a tragic mistake to assume that based on that, you're not sent. Again, our call to go isn't always a call to leave. And our call to reach so often begins with people and communities that are within our reach, places God has already placed us. One of my favorite authors is David Platt. He says, there are no unreached people in your neighborhood because God placed you there. That's challenging. Seven, I just moved to our neighborhood in September, right? There are no unreached people in your neighborhood because God placed you there. And we're needed there. You know, nominal Christianity, the people that claim Christianity but don't live it, that's actually shrinking. More and more we're seeing what they call, quote, unquote, the nuns, where there's no religious affiliation. So our secular culture, newsflash, is probably not going anywhere. But that doesn't mean our perspective needs to be that, oh, we're all going to hell in a handbasket or the sky is falling. God still reigns. God's still sovereign. And the need is still the same. People still need Jesus. And more and more, they need it right next door. More and more, they need it in our neighborhoods where we're living. We so often don't want to reach the regions that are far geographically, but not the people that are far gone spiritually. Again, you look at Jeremiah 29, the Babylonians were far, far gone. Yet God said, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Even said, pray for them. Because no one is ever simply an enemy. And no one ever is solely a victim. How easy it would have been for those exiles to just think, man, we're a bunch of victims and they're a bunch of enemies. Even in our culture wars, sometimes it's like, we're the saints, y'all are the sinners, so we draw lines in the sand. We're not called to draw lines in the sand. We're called to get dirty reaching people. Your calling is usually closer than you think. Come on, that's reaching. I want to talk about serving and service. It's one of the ways we step into that calling that's closer than we think. In the Bible, there's twofold. We see the service of God and the service of our community. Because just because the church is our home, that we're called to an exile, doesn't mean that we should treat our cities and our region as a hotel. We're called to invest in them, build them, work in them. We're called to seek their prosperity. So how are we to serve our world and to work in our community? How many of you guys in, in high school took one of those tests that's supposed to determine, like, what you're going to do later in life? The, what do they call those? I don't even remember. As, yeah, yep, whatever y'all said. That was it. I don't remember. How many of y'all remember your results? What were yours, Jason? A park ranger? <laughs> do anything but don't touch the tool. That's actually good life advice. You can take that anywhere. Nurse? All right. Anybody else remember theirs? Teacher? That nail on the head. Yeah. Anybody else, like, it said something and you went on to do that? Yeah. Mine, I didn't go on to do mine. I had two. I guess it was a tie. One was airplane pilot. The other was hairstylist. So, you know, like, Top Gun was cooler than Edward Scissorhands, so I didn't pick up scissors and start practicing. I was like, let me look into the Air Force, because that, that would be all right. But I've actually been cutting my hair for, like, over a decade, so maybe it was onto something after all. Who knows? But I can remember taking that test in high school and thinking, oh, this is my calling, right? 
And in college, the, it even ups the ante. Right? Everybody's talking, what are you doing after you graduate? Again, I, I started following Christ as a senior in college, so that just flipped the entire script. I'm like, I'm not really sure yet. I'm still praying about it. And you would talk to people. What are you doing? You might talk to a couple people. One guy's going to Africa, investing in community, community development, build wells. And then the other guy might say, well, well I'm going to go serve with my dad. He's a mechanic. Do that for as long as I need to. And as a young believer, the trap I would fall into is think, well, that guy's calling is higher than that guy's calling. Or think, this guy's more committed than this guy. But there are some traps when you look at callings. There's, it's dangerous. The first is when we turn our calling into solely about something we do instead of a posture of our heart. And it can take a station in life, whether it's an assignment, profession, career, or role, and make it our identity. Whether it's managing a business or managing a family. And then when you get fired or those kids go off to college, they exit the picture all of a sudden. Wait, what, what am I called to again? Now, there are those callings in life, and we'll get to that. But it's also about a posture of the heart. But there's a second danger as well. In romanticizing my calling as something that's elusive and over the horizon and exclusive. We can get so focused on this quest for a calling that we never work our witness right where God's put us, where we're called to be, where we're planted. And then if we're always focused on the horizon and this elusive calling that's like a four-leaf clover we're looking for, almost like the one when you talk about a husband or a wife, then we can get burnout and cynical when God calls us to be a witness where we are. You know, we, we can so often look for a radical calling when we're called to be radically faithful right where we are. Now, our calling, again, is always closer than we think. There are unique callings that each of us are called to. Again, we've talked about it before. My wife and I are walking through an adoption. That's not a call for everybody. That is a unique calling. But there are also universal callings where if something's over the horizon, that doesn't mean you can't get to work right now. Start building right now. One of our universal calls as Christians is to proclaim Christ wherever we've been placed. You might not be called to preach Christ from a pulpit, but we're called to proclaim Christ with our lives, to glorify him no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter what our vocation might be. Another universal calling is to work with the grace God gives us in the place he's planted us. You don't have to graduate to a calling. If you're in high school, middle school, college, your calling's not something over the horizon. There's a universal calling we all have to work with the grace God gives us in the place he's planted us. You don't have to wait for a calling. As a church, we're going to be called to unique callings. Ways that maybe nobody else has reached our community. Maybe ways that, that nobody else has thought about before. But also right now, we can step into serving. We've talked as a leadership team about getting involved with what Micah's Backpack. It's something Faith Lutheran does. They partner with other churches. There's 20 students at Creekside Elementary that have food anxiety, meaning they don't know where their next meal is coming from. So they, they gather the supplies, they bag them up, and they give them anonymously to the school so they can hand those off to the students. Sometimes service isn't about what's going to make the, the best Instagram post with the most likes or inspire a biography or, or make it into the newspaper. It's about what can I do by the grace of God to serve people where he's planted us. So we're jumping right into that. Again, we might have unique callings over the horizon, but we all have ways we can serve right now, our church and our community. First Thessalonians 4.11 kind of dumps cold water on this whole tantalizing calling over the horizon. It says, aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. It echoes God's call for the Israelites to build, even while they were in exile. No doubt they thought, man, I can walk in my calling when I get back to Jerusalem, right? God can't be calling me to serve here. This can't be a part of my calling. But calling wasn't about an ideal or an elusive situation. It was about getting to work, again, with the grace God gave them and the place God planted them. 
Again, you read those verses. God says, I carried you here. I've planted you here. And guess what? God can give you grace for wherever he's planted you. Jesus says in John 17, 4, I brought glory to you on earth, praying to his father. He says, I brought glory to you on earth by doing the work you gave me to do. And we've talked about it in previous weeks. Jesus essentially stepped into exile, stepped out of the throne room of heaven, into flesh to serve us. And he says, I brought glory to you on earth by doing the work you gave me to do. Speaking in past tense, the cross was the fulfillment, but a lot came before that. You think Jesus worked years and years as a carpenter. Jesus built, and he built a lot. He spent an overwhelming majority of his life as a carpenter. You look at Paul. Paul built tents. He also was called to travel, spread the gospel in the church all throughout the region. But then you go to the Bible. Look at the first person the Spirit filled to perform a task. A guy named Bezalel. Anybody heard of him? really learn about him much in Sunday school. There's not a lot of sermons preached on him. That's because his calling wasn't glamorous. It wasn't global. But he was gifted by the Spirit to build stuff. <laughs> he built the tabernacle. Not the most glamorous, not the most global. Sometimes I bet monotonous, tedious handiwork, and yet he did it for the glory of God. God graced him for it in the place he planted him. So what does our work and calling look like? Where can we serve our community? Where can we serve our church? Last week, we talked about the early church in Acts and how that's the vision, you know, for our church, for many churches, that we want to thrive and, and see people added daily just like that early church. And we talked about how they, they continued gathering. They continued coming together. They got rooted. They, they got rooted in the family of faith. But you know what? They also, they also continued serving. We talked last week about how this church service is kind of like the foyer of your home. So you get your handshake where you learn some names. And then life groups, fellowship, relationship, that's, that's like the living room. And then serving, that's kind of like the kitchen. It's where you get your hands dirty. Maybe you prepare a meal, clean some dishes. We're a church plant. There's a lot of roles to be filled. You see somebody wearing a Kid Life shirt like that or a Blue City Life shirt like that, those people are heroes. They're rock stars, right? We're not like the, the other church, well, not the other church, a more established church where they're like, what one week of the, the month do you want to serve? We're like, what one week out of the next three months do you want off? Because we got some roles that need to be filled, and these people are sacrificing their time. These people are, are serving their tails off. But you look at our church, then you look at the church in Acts, again, where people were being added daily, where it says, you know, thousands in one day were added to the church. Can you imagine the roles that needed to be stepped into, the service that needed to be done in a church like that that was growing? That's why I love the story of Stephen. It happens in Acts chapter 6. The apostles, they're busy preaching. They're busy teaching. Apparently, they're doing it really effectively because people just keep being added and added and added. And up comes this, this job that needs to be done, basically providing food for widows. And, and they, they grab Stephen. Wasn't just anybody. He was filled with the Spirit. He was the guy for the job. But Stephen eventually starts serving, right? Basically running again a food program for widows. And watch this. The very next verse is what does it say about Stephen? That miracles are popping off. I love it. It says, it says he was full of God's grace and power, performing amazing miracles among the people. It's because he wasn't focused on what could get him the most acclaim. He was focused on what was needed in the moment. What can I do with the grace God gives me in the place he's planted me? And when you do that for the glory of God, you might see miracles. You might see God move in powerful, incredible ways. But you know what? You might also serve. And I told our, our plant team this before we planted. You might also serve and you might never 
multiply food. You might never walk on water. You might never raise somebody from the dead. But Jesus put on the nature of a servant. You look most like Jesus Christ when you're serving. You put on the very nature Jesus Christ did when you step into moments of service. It's powerful to think about. It also says in Philippians 2 that he didn't view, Jesus didn't view, equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. So Jesus didn't cling. We're not called to cling to things either. That's why I want to finish with stewardship and generosity. Because how often in life do we hold back from reaching? Do we hold back from serving in the way that God has called us to because we're clinging? We're clinging to resources. Whether it's our time and energy or our skill set and our talents or our money, whatever the resource might be, yet we look at Jesus who gave up equality with God. Again, in Matthew 10, it says, you have been treated generously, so live generously. Don't think that you had to put on a fundraising campaign before you start. You don't need a lot of equipment. You are the equipment. You know, you look at a steward. A steward, by definition, is a person who has been entrusted with another's resources and who seeks to manage those resources according to the owner's vision and values. See, again, in, in, all the way back in Eden, we're given dominion, called to build, called to do it according to God's vision and values. Again, in Jeremiah 29, given dominion, called to build, to do our work, to do our part, even in exile. And once you realize that all is a resource gifted from God and realize that his will for us is to take to the world, we have the perspective of a steward and generosity immediately flows. You look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. See, a, a perspective of stewardship produces a posture of generosity. When you realize that none of this is my own, God's called me to use it to build his kingdom, you'll live generously. And the paradox of generosity is that as we give, we grow. It says here, give and you won't lose out on a thing. So you might not maybe grow into a bigger tax bracket, but you might grow into a bigger perspective of who God is. You might not grow into a bigger car, but you might grow into a bigger trust in God. You might not grow into a bigger home, but you might grow into a bigger faith in the God that you can't outgive. Come on, we talk about these pathways. Talk about the 12 pathways, these 12 disciplines. If you can look them up on the site, the first podcast from the first week, but they grow us. They're there for our benefit. We tend to focus on the, the objects of ministry, the ways we serve, the people we serve, and the results of our stewardship and our generosity. And those are good things, right? The souls we lead to Christ, the marriages that are rescued, the poor that are fed and housed, the elderly taken care of. But you look at Luke 10, verse 20, where the disciples return to Jesus. They're like, man, we did all this cool stuff. And, and Jesus seems just as excited and amped and concerned about what was happening in their hearts, the people who were doing the work as the product of the work. He says to them in, in, in Luke 10, 20, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And we talk about home. We talk about heaven. Perfect relationship with God. As we walk in pathways, as we reach, as we serve, as we do all these things, we grow in relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, one day we get to be welcomed home eternally. Perfect relationship with God. Rejoice about that. We could have the worship team come up. I just want to close. I want to close with this thought. Talked a little bit about callings tonight. I think the coolest calling in scripture to me is in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah is called. Right? The, the seraphim comes up with like the coal, presses it to his lips, and just shouts out, here I am, send me. 
Here I am, send me. What's he replying to? God was asking, hey, who's going to work this field over here? Who can I send? And you look at Isaiah, you look at his life, you look at where he was sent. He was basically sent home, right back to where he came, to work primarily, if not exclusively, in Jerusalem. See, our reply to God's call, again, it might be right here at home. His call to go isn't always a call to leave, but that's no less glorious. The most glorious calling you can walk out in your life is to do work through the grace of God right where he's placed you. Come on in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, on our sports teams, whatever it might be, in our small groups, life groups, people that we have influence with. So tonight, maybe you would say, here I am. You know what, let's actually stand before we go into worship, but, but maybe you would say, as we stand, you would say, here I am from the perspective of somebody that's never been in relationship with Jesus. You would say, here I am from the perspective of somebody that's never truly stepped home into relationship with God. Never truly said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord over my life. Never truly said, God, I want to give you everything. Not just a part of my life, not just a weekend, but, but all of my life. Just like those pathways, you, you give God your life, you're going to be receiving more than you could ever imagine. Home, heaven, relationship with God. So if that's you tonight, when we go back into worship, I just want you to find me tonight because I want to pray for you. And maybe also tonight, you would say, here I am from the perspective I haven't been serving like I need to. Maybe because I haven't been a part of a family of faith, right? Maybe I haven't been serving like I need to. Maybe I haven't been reaching because I've been struggling with generosity. But if it's any of that, then come on, let's take this moment of worship. Let's let God touch that place that we've had hidden. If you need prayer, Jason's here. I'm here. Come on, we want to pray with you. But let's go back into worship and worship the God who calls us home tonight.